Narrative Futures. How do the stories we tell shape how we think about the future, the present, and the past? What is speculation for? And how might we construct better narratives for a better future? Narrative Futures is a podcast coming to you from Futures Thinking, a research network housed in the Oxford Centre for Research in the Humanities. My name is Chelsea Haith. I'm a doctoral researcher in the Faculty of English here at the University of Oxford. You're listening to the third episode of Narrative Futures. In conversation with Sami Shah, we explore what it means to bring religious and secular worldviews together in speculative fiction and discuss the possibility of our eventual subjugation to benign AI overlords. This podcast is interactive. Following the interview, you'll be treated to two writing prompts designed by novelist and creative writing tutor extraordinaire Louis Greenberg. We invite you to share your response to these with us via email at futuresthinking at torch.ox.ac.uk. We'll share these on the blog, where you'll also be able to find the full transcript of each episode with links to the books, writers and ideas that we discuss. As the world so radically changes, we hope these conversations and ideas give you insight and inspiration to think about how else we might live and create collectively going forward. Sami Shah is a radio broadcaster, stand-up comedian, and author of The Boy of Fire and Earth, which is about a young man's quest through a fictional Karachi filled with creatures from Pakistani and Muslim mythology. He is also the author of I Migrant and The Islamic Republic of Australia, and in a past life was part of Pakistan's first English-language improvised comedy troupe, Blackfish. Currently based in Melbourne, Australia, Shah also contributed his critically acclaimed short story, Reap, to the short story collection The Jinn Falls in Love and Other Stories, edited by Jared Sheeran and Mavesh Murad, who also feature in the next two episodes of this podcast. What follows is an extract from Shah's story, Reap, in which myth and technology become intertwined in a way that demands that we reconsider how we categorise the unknowable in the world. Uh, so, Reap is a story about a... Um, a, a drone operating center in America, you know, because the drones that work in Afghanistan and all these places are basically based out of the U.S. And so it's about a drone operating center kind of viewing a village in Pakistan and, uh, you know, watching for Taliban activity and everything and then somehow accidentally witnessing a child's possession by a jinn and the subsequent kind of tearing apart of the village. Um, so the main characters in it are Grant, who is one of the who is the pro, the, the protagonist. He's a operator in America uh, who works with the Air Force and and runs drones. And he's got a few other people. There's Anna, the analyst, who's a civilian, and a few other people around him as well who work. So when the story, um, the portion I'm about to read to you is when they've just noticed because they watch this village all the time, and so they know the lives of the people in the village. And now they've just noticed that uh, one of the children of a family of around eleven children that they know um, 
one of the children hasn't returned from school that day, and that's a bit strange. So, what's happening? Anna, the analyst asked. Miriam isn't back with the other kids, and I think something's happened to her, Grant said. The kids were all clustered around their father, pointing back the way they had come. Grant, with eyes that could see further, and a vantage point that allowed a wider view, was already scanning the landscape. A grazing donkey, trees, scrub. These became bright spots of light as Grant cycled through to infrared, picking up heat signatures. Well, shit. Hope she's okay, said Ernesto. I don't know you cared, the analyst said. It's not exactly a great place to be a little girl anyway. Grant scanned one last time then returned to the primary zone the father david had set off to set off uh, the father david had set off with his elder three children in tow retracing their steps oh and they've named all the people in the village themselves so they've called the father of the little girl david and mm. they've called the little girl miriam they have no way of knowing the actual names sorry the father david had set off with his elder three children in tow retracing their steps the rest had gone back inside the excitement had clearly been too much for tommy the taliban's bowels to contain and he was back in his house light flaring out from under the edges of the wooden out shack uh, of the wooden shack outhouse there was almost no activity worth noting for the remainder of the shift david and his sons were out of observable range and grant logged all of tommy the talib's entrances and exits jeffrey's back ernesto said grant focused the cameras bringing into view a man pedaling across the desert Jeffrey was thin and wore giant spectacles. He didn't wear a turban around his head, but he went out like David and Tommy the Talib did. They didn't know why, nor did they know much else about him. He had always lived alone and seldom left the house. When he did leave, he went to the bazaar a few miles away, returning with just enough food for one. He barely spoke to the others, and they gave him a wide berth when possible. He's scared or anxious. He's something for sure, Anna the analyst said, leaning over Grant and pointing at Jeffrey's face. They could read emotion through thermal imaging, had been trained to do so. When a subject was experiencing heightened stresses, the blood moved differently to parts of the face. The tip of the nose was the giveaway, glowing brighter when angry or embarrassed and dulling when frightened or surprised. Jeffrey's face was almost as grey as the surrounding countryside. How long has he gone? Anna asked. Grant consulted Sean's notes. Seven hours and thirteen minutes. They kept notes on everything, so that eventually some nerd in the Pentagon would use that to extrapolate where Jeffrey had gone and what he'd done while gone. He's been rolling around in mud, it looks like, Grant said. Then he zoomed him some more. No, that's not mud. It's got a mild heat sig. Very mild, but it's there. Blood? asked Anna. Yeah, said Grant. Huh, said Ernesto. They watched Jeffrey cycle furiously up to, his ho up to his home, skidding to a stop and almost falling off at his front door. He unlocked it, shoved the bike inside, and dove in after, the door slamming shut so hard Grant could almost hear it. Well, that's not fucking suspicious at all, said Anna, the analyst. Grant felt bits of intuitive datum grow connective tissue. Did David and the boys weren't back yet. That meant they hadn't found Miriam. Dried blood. And no one else had seen Jeffrey indict himself. No one on the ground, at least. Not Miriam's father, probably not her mother, none of her siblings, not even any of the neighbours. It was almost sunset in Pakistan. The dull visibility was why they were on thermal imaging and had seen the mild heat emanating from the splatter on his clothes. The timing meant that anyone who was indoors was praying. The Tommy the Talib would usually be at the mosque at this time, but even he hadn't left his home, likely afraid of soiling himself and prostrating to Allah. Grant switched to the side cameras, searching the periphery. In the distance, he picked up the flitting signature glows of David and his two sons heading back, defeat writ in their posture. 
He watched them return home, David pausing to look back out over the desert before entering. Too dark to keep searching, Grant said. Then, you know, Reap's due for refueling in two hours. We can take a roundabout way home, see if we pick up anything. Ernesto considered this. As commanding officer on deck, it was within his purview to okay it, but he'd also have to explain any deviations in the flight plan higher up. Grant turned to look up at him. It's Miriam, Grant said. She's just a little girl. We've watched her for months. I'd spot her in a crowd if need be. There's no crowd, said Ernesto. If she's out there, she's likely dead, which means she isn't giving off any heat. And say you do find her, what then? Ernesto was right. There was no way of notifying anyone on the ground in that small village in rural Pakistan. They didn't even know they were being watched from above. Grant was about to concede the point when Anna the analyst said, What's that? Grant turned his back to the screens. In the distance, the same direction the children went to school in, David and the boys went searching for Miriam, and Jeffrey had come back in panic from. A single flare of brilliant white glowed brightly, like a blade of light slicing its way across the desert. How far out is it? Anna the analyst said. Grant did some quick math. About four clicks heading towards the village. It's fast too, we should make contact in 18 minutes. What is it? asked Ernesto. His main screen was filled with the same visual display you'd get in a jet HUD, except his view was, was, was oriented directly below the drone. He kept glancing over at Grant's screen. The light had narrowed into an ivory pillar, still moving steadily. I can't tell. Too bright to be vehicular. Not even if it had a coal furnace. That much heat can only... I, I don't know. Anna the analyst was leaning over him. Close the aperture. I think I see something, she said. Grant typed out a series of commands. The screen darkened, visibility dropping away. The spectral starlight given off by wildlife scurrying across the desert floors faded into uniform blackness. Even the blaze from their object of attention diminished until it was little more than low flame. At its base was a child. It was still too far for Grant to be sure, but it was the same size as Miriam and had the same scrawny build. At first he thought she was crawling on her hands and knees. Then he realized that was an inaccurate description. She was propelling herself only with her hands, legs stretched limp behind her, slithering from side to side as she lurched forward. It's her, said Anna the analyst, right? Yes, ma'am, said Grant. It is, I'm pretty sure. How's she moving so fast, Ernesto said. Grant was panning the cameras to keep pace with her. As they watched, the girl sped over rocks and across a narrow gully, moving so fast she was almost leaping. The heat emanated from within her, emanating from within her was fierce, even with visibility reduced to almost nil. As she grew closer to home, they were able to discern details. Her clothes were torn, ragged patches hanging on her frame, and her legs were streaked with blood, the feet twisted almost entirely around. Grant zoomed in on her face, and from next to him, Ernesto said, Oh, Jesus. It was definitely Miriam. Despite the distorted mouth, her lips were pulled back in a grin so wide it would have split her cheeks. Long teeth glowed inside, her eyes were dark holes in her face. She was almost at her front door now, snaking up the dirt path to her home. She stopped there, legs still stretched uselessly behind her. Then, as Grant and the others in the container watched, she turned her body sideways, tilted her head back up, and stared straight at them. Pinpricks of light flared in the hollow gashes in her face where her eyes should have been. White petals climbed out of each hollow and unfurled across her face. It's fire, Grant heard himself say. She fucking looking at us, Ernesto was saying. Then the feed from Reap cut out. So that's it. That's great. Lovely. Thank you so much. Um, my pleasure. Yeah, it's my, 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 I don't know if it makes sense because I've kind of dropped you into the middle of the story. But Reap is the, the Reaper drone that uh, surveys the village. And um, yeah, and what happened. 
happens next, uh, you'd have to read to find out. Mm. <laughs> the the world that you build um, in in Reap um, and in Boy of Fire and Earth is is the world that we know, um, but with this with this element of um, of the mythical. Um, do you want to talk us through a little bit why um, why you've chosen to write these stories this way? Well, for me, it's it's because that's the kind of world I grew up in. So I grew up in Pakistan, in Karachi, and 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 being a Muslim country and being a, a South Asian Muslim country, which has not just kind of Muslim mythology like jinns and all of that involved in it, but also more local flavor like creatures like the the Pichalperi and the Churel and stuff. These are the boogeymen, the boogie creatures that kind of bump go bump in the night that we grew up with we knew we were told of but what happens in a western country is when you grow up you stop believing in those things right um you believe in rational world and the world you can see and touch but religion is so deeply wound into our lives that 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 stuff is a part of religion it's part of religious belief you know if you are a muslim you have to believe in the quran in in allah in the prophet muhammad and also in the reality that jinns exist and interact with humans regularly uh, you know jinns are according to islam a creature made of fire that exists in a dimension parallel to ours that can in- enter our dimension at will sometimes they're good sometimes they're malicious and then muslims believe that the devil is a jinn not a fallen angel for example so that's you know that's the kind of things that 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 were part of my life like when i was growing up we had stories and, and not even when i was growing up when i was an adult you know we had stories that we believed that there's a sweet shop that has uh, a leaves a tray of desserts out every night which is gone by morning because the jinns come and eat it and because of the you know the gift to the jinns the sweet shop does well there's um you know there there was stories about you know that so and so relative's daughter got possessed by a jinn and that's why no one can marry her or so and so um uncle can speak to jinns and see jinns and he would you know when we were around he would sometimes say you know oh there's a jinn in that corner of the room you can't see him but he's there but he's a good jinn like so that intersection of modernity and 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 everyday mundane life and the supernatural is so common and so almost mundane in its own way uh, if you're in those places of the world that uh, i just felt like the stories I want to tell are stories which uh, aren't, you know, in in any other context, they might be called magical realist but or fantasy, but they're not. When you're growing up there, they're reality. Yeah, I think that's really that's really important. The intersection of um, of these worlds, I suppose, and the the reality is that that these are realities for people um, rather than um, rather than fantasies. So when I when I'm thinking about your um, your urban fantasy novel um, Boyer of Fire and Earth, mm-hmm. one of the reviews uh, notes that you are doing for Karachi what Gaiman did for London in Neverwhere. Hmm. Um, hmm. So and then previously you'd written uh, I Migrant about your experience being yes. an immigrant and working as a journalist um, and now as a stand up comic. Um, so you're quite genre fluid um, and you work across a lot of different kind of um, narrative um, strategies, I suppose. Well, part of it is, uh, if you look at the Boy of Fire and Earth and I, Migrant, they both have something kind of secretly hidden in them, which is Boy of Fire and Earth is actually a story of Karachi. It's It's got a bit of history of Karachi, but it's got it's about the city that I grew up in, a city that I still have a deep and abiding love for. And I, Migrant is an autobiography, but it's actually the social political history of Pakistan. I like telling stories about geography, about place, and then situating people in that place. And so there is that common theme kind of running through the work. But 
Yeah, at the same time, I like writing. I, and, and for me, I'm also a stand-up comedian, so I, I, I write stand-up comedy and I perform it regularly. And the, uh, the script I'm working on these days is a crime noir kind of story for someone. And, and uh, the next book I'm halfway through is a book about media in Australia and, and how it affects people's lives. So I think what I like doing is, um, and I know it's a problem because it might actually end up meaning that I'm spread so thin that no one ever actually ends up, you know, I'll never become a success because I'll have too many, too disparate a, a body of work. But I just like going where the story goes. And if the story wants to be told, the story that wants to be told is a serious story or a genre fiction story or a science fiction story or a horror story or a crime noir story, then that's the story I will tell. I don't want to be limited in the stories I can tell because the stories I read and the stories I enjoy aren't limited to one genre either. You know, I read comics, I read science fiction, fantasy, crime, autobiography, history. I read all those things. And so I want to be able to tell all those things as well. Absolutely. I think it's the mark of a good reader and a good writer to be well versed in a variety of um, of genres. Um, and obviously, like concepts of genre can be quite mm -hmm. problematic. Um, as you say, you fear being spread too thin, because that's kind of what the market demands, right? A, a writers who are slightly pigeonholed. Um, so the yes. readers know that's what I'm getting when I read Sammy Shah. But um, when you read Sammy Shah, you get lots of different narratives. When you think about the future, so, I mean, you, um, it was announced late last year that um, you would be leaving um, ABC Melbourne um, mm -hmm. um, to write more. Um, so, yeah, you've mentioned that you're, you're working on um, urban noir and crime noir. Um, when you think about writing narratives for the future, what kind of narratives are you hoping to either write or read? Well, when it comes to, well, I guess that'd be futuristic fiction, science fiction, and that kind of a thing. And it's, I'm actually at this strange place right now where I'm not enjoying that genre much anymore because I feel like, uh, or at least I'm, there's some still some books in it that I enjoy, but the ones that are more recently that I've encountered just feel as if the future we were predicting has been so wildly different from the future that we uh, that we've result you know ended up with if you look at the books i read as a kid which was set in the year 2020 and so on and so forth you know none of them predicted cell phones none of them predicted uh, coronavirus outbreaks none of them pre predicted the internet even so, so in so many ways you know other than maybe william gibson here or there or 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 bitter neil stevenson so I like reading far-flung stories now, which are set thousands of thousands of years in the future. You know, something by Anne Leckie, for example, or someone like that, um, with her Imperial Ratch trilogy, mm. because it's practically fantasy at that point. It, it's so far-flung that, you know, I don't have to worry about the plausibility of it. But the one I want to read, which I can't read because I haven't found it yet, which then makes me want to write it, is something about... It's about the lives of people like me, you know, South Asians, brown people, Desis, like, you know, we, we aren't there in these science fiction stories. And I started thinking a lot about that a lot more recently, which is, you know, if you look at the history of the world, you look at the current kind of state of the world, um, you know, it's built on the backs of brown people. It's, you know, it's basically, if you go to, from Saudi Arabia to London, um, Every building is built by someone who's a brown immigrant. Every food, your food is delivered by a brown guy. You're you're in working the kitchens around the world. If you speak Punjabi, if you're in, in America you, and you don't speak Hispanic, you're not going to be able to work in a kitchen. If you're in London 
or in Melbourne or in in Riyadh and you don't speak Urdu or Hindi, you're not going to be able to work in a kitchen. Like it's a completely changed world that way. And there's, there's a demographic representation which is so sorely lacking. Um, so I like I want to be able to tell that story. I want to be able to tell the story of AI, what happens with artificial intelligence, because I feel like we haven't fully understood where it goes, what it does, how it could impact our lives. And we're kind of blindly and blithely going forward with it. But, uh, you know, better minds than I have kind of touched on that. But I feel like the element that I can bring to it is the representational story. Absolutely, yeah. There's some interesting work being done um, at the Centre for the Future of Intelligence in Cambridge um, by uh, mm-hmm. Cancer de Hall and Stephen Cave. And they presented um, at a conference that I ran um, in October 2019 about the whiteness of AI. That's right. And a lot of people have kind of uh, explored some of those elements in, in different researches, which I've enjoyed. For example, one of the things that I keep thinking about, and I've, I've spent a lot of time actually thinking about this, is, you know, one of the... E- areas where we don't see an implementation of AI, and no one seems to be talking about the possibility of that implementation, even though to me it seems so obvious, is government, in terms of replacing government politicians, etc., with AI. Because in the end, what do you need the government for? You need a government to make sure the trains run on time, to make sure the, the traffic lights work. It's resource management. At its heart, a politician's job is resource management, making sure food gets here, money goes there, things like that, all the policy decisions. That's stuff that can be done with an equation. That's stuff that with with a, with an intuitive enough algorithm, you could actually have all of those things done on a global level without ever worrying about the 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 corruption and the and the ego and the poly, and and ideologies that human politics bring into it. If the United Nations gets replaced by an AI um, that has an algorithm that that's main purpose is resource management and sees. Not enough food here, too much food there, move food from here to there. Not enough, you know, roads are bad here, money over there, move money from here to there. Things like that, uh, you know, employment, et cetera, et cetera. These are all equations. Economists use them and mathematicians use them to study the world all the time. But we have not taken to that next level of implementation. And because we think that if we give hand it over to AI, we're going to end up with the Terminator. But uh, I don't think the Terminator would be interested in killing us at all. I think that we'd be too far below and too easy a problem to solve for the Terminator to even bother with. I really like the idea of, um, of yeah, of, of a, a beneficent global organizing structure. Yeah. But what we presume in that, right, of course, is that the algorithm is unbiased and that it will move food from here to there where is necessary. Mm-hmm. But as you've um, highlighted, you know, the world is built on the backs of brown people. And yet those people are widely disenfranchised um, and impoverished by, by these structures, right? So it becomes a question of who writes the algorithms and how exactly. and why. Um, and what do we what do we feed into the algorithm right because our current systems are perhaps not the best data (laughs) (laughs) yeah absolutely and that becomes the thing look I think with coronavirus we've kind of seen even though we're not acknowledging the importance of an organization like the World Health Organization or the United Nations, because it turns out that America having a terrible healthcare system impacts the rest of the world, that New Zealand having a good healthcare system saves you know, places as well. So obviously at this point, the health of someone in a rural village in, in, in England 
has a direct connection to the health of someone in Zaire, to the health of someone in Perth, you know, around the world. We've got that thing because of globalization, which means, whether we like it or not, a universal body that, that oversees, you know, basic human rights and, and, and basic care is something that's more important now than ever before. But yes, you're right. You know, how do you then go, go from there to implementing something that actually does function? Because if it go, comes through Silicon Valley, it'll be the same kind of things. Everything else in Silicon Valley has been, which is, you know, you go, if you're a black man and you go into the bathroom and you try washing your hands, the sensor doesn't read your hands because it only reads white hands. Yeah, Joy Boyle-Amwini has done some really important work on how facial recognition is so racist um, and how it can't read mm-hmm. it can't read women of colour. Yeah, there's there's some really important research being done on the ethics of AI, but the way that we you know the way that the, the corporates work with with AI um, tends to be this push towards the singularity, which is decades away, if not you know not centuries. So yeah, there is a, a kind yeah, of difficult absolutely. disjunct and- there. It is that. It's the um, it's the drive for progress no matter what. And uh, there's that TV show on HBO called uh, Silicon Valley. And, uh, you know, it's it's a comedy and it's a very bro-ish comedy at that. But there was an interesting interview I saw with Kumail Nanjiani, who is one of the actors on that, because, you know, they got to hang out with a lot of Silicon Valley bigwigs. And and those bigwigs were very excitedly showing them all the projects that they're working on, all the new up and coming stuff, which, you know, they can't reveal to the world yet. And and he said, you'd be frightened out of your mind if you knew what they're working on, because they are not responsible. They're entirely like children and very, very dangerous. And the ideas that they're toying around with, they just aren't considering the repercussions of. So, yeah, the advancements are happening because there's no regulation or the regulation is so easily to, to kind of skirt around. These advancements are happening at a frightening pace, but I also feel that they're just not happening in, in areas that are of interest because someone in Silicon Valley won't think of um, how AI can impact and improve the lives of, a, a, of, the, of the Democratic Republic of Congo, you know, of the DRC, because that's just not something to give a damn about. However, something like that could be a place like that could benefit from certain tools you know you know just drones delivering food food supplements uh, or food alternatives that don't require anything other than just add water and clean water filters and things that all can be done using you know 3d printing etc absolutely yeah i completely agree i think as you say resource management is such an important potential outcome of this and yet what we're looking at is increases in uh, global inequalities right so things have changed so much um, in the last few months um, so I kind of want to talk about narratives of the present and how you think uh, the narratives that we have at the moment might shape whatever comes next I think one of the things you're going to see is a lot of writers coming out with books set either in the future or in the past because the present has become so chaotic that uh, it's actually affected the books that we're working on. I mean, I'm halfway through a novel that I've had to put on pause because coronavirus and isolation was not something I anticipated. It was a novel set in present times. I have to now incorporate that into the story. I just don't know how because I'm still experiencing it. So I can't even look back on it and make any analysis. I'm sure there are wonderful writers and extremely talented writers who are going to tell facts fascinating stories about what's happening right now and they're writing those stories right now but I think for a lot of us it's uh 
it's kind of taken us by surprise in that uh, I know a few writers who I've spoken to who said I've actually written less during this isolation period, which you think would be a boon for us, than I thought I would because it's just it's just confusing about how to fold this into a story, how to fold this into reality. I mean, we don't know. We're, we're in such a time of flux suddenly that uh, to make any predictions would be dangerous. Absolutely. And there's there's also the element of this being a, a time of, of insideness and inward looking, right? Um, mm-hmm. A huge amount of introspection about what kind of societies we are, which is actually a very typical um, quality of plague fiction. If we think about Giovanni Boccaccio's um, Decameron, you know, uh, yeah. 10 people seclude themselves to talk about their society. I mean, also to avoid the plague, Black Death, but they, um, but they're, but they're, what they're doing is they're telling stories about the early Renaissance in Italy and what the society is like and kind of how to navigate it. But it's quite hard, I think, for people to mesh the yeah to mesh stories about the that kind of come from the past into the present because we have no idea what's going to happen next people might actually start seeking out more historical fiction historical novels and just books on general history and things overall because it's uh, and it's not to learn from the past or anything like that. i think it's because that'll become something that we can find comfort in is a time when you know, Trump wasn't the president, Boris Johnson wasn't the prime minister, and there wasn't, you know, a, a massive global pandemic locking us in our houses with uh, Netflix and Stan and, and those things. So I think at, at this point where uh, we're going to see changes in appetite for what people want to watch, what people enjoy, uh, it, the rise of TikTok, for example, has been fascinating to me because it's this, this is short format you know, sketch comedy video app, which people have shown incredible ingenuity with. And they're doing it all from the living room and, they, and they've got production facilities on an app that, you know, that, that are remarkable given how easy they are to implement. And they're doing it all at home while locked down. And, and how will that change the world we live in? You know, when will we ever go back to cinema even when it comes back? Will we just want to stay at home and watch stuff anyway? Will You know, um what will we watch when we watch things now? You know, why the hell was Tiger King so addictive to everyone? I think it's because for a lot of people, it was someone whose life was even more bananas than their lives were right now. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, there's a really interesting kind of uh, shift towards thinking about, um, you know, we, we used to consume reality TV. I'm thinking about the 2000s and the boom of Big Brother. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, you know, that was so um, culturally kind of re- um, relevant and um, and referential. And now we have um, kind of a, a return to um, to alternatives, which I think is really funny, given the the sort of boom of um, dystopia in the last, or dystopian novels and TV shows and mm-hmm. media um, in the last twenty years. Um, and I, yeah, I do wonder about what will it look like, um, what will the media and um, publishing landscape look like um, in the next five years, given uh, that we that we are currently living through what feels like um, a sort of futuristic um, uh, world. I think the um, uh, Apple might have kind, you know, uh, put their finger on the pulse of things with the, uh, I don't know if you saw recently, they announced the teaser trailer for Foundation, the Asimov book, the series um, that they're adapting into a TV show. And, and it's very much a TV show about the end of one civilization and the rising of 
another one through its ashes, you know, as more inspired by the, the, the fall of the Roman Republic and, and how uh, the Roman Empire or the, or the Western Roman Empire and how, you know, other things came out from that. And, and, and I think everyone is very clearly, very obviously feeling the reality of an end of one era right now. Uh, you know, we're living through that moment when Rome kind of fell or when when um, the Assyrian Empire kind of collapsed and uh, the, the fall of Nineveh or, or something along those lines. Although the British Empire has, you know, suddenly discovered that they weren't an empire anymore. And mm. we're going to go through that with America now. And we're, we don't know what comes next. And I think dystopian fiction right now might actually be a little too close to home and you might end up seeing the birth of utopian fiction instead. Mm, yeah, a return to the you know the, the feminist sci-fi's of the nineteen seventies. This might be the time that Ursula K. Le Guin, her books will finally get the full you know global appreciation. Narrative futures. For those writers and speculators listening, stay with us now for writing prompts and exercises designed to encourage putting pen to paper or hands to keyboard, as well as reflection on the writing process. This section is designed and presented by Louis Greenberg. In this interview, Sami Shah raises the intriguing possibility of a benign AI taking over the work of global government. Although my own imaginative leaning is towards knee-jerk, paranoid Ludditism when it comes to tech, Shaw makes a compelling case that government by AI would be efficient and free of corruption and ego. But we would need to set some rules, surely. For your first exercise, I'd like you to help save the world by making five rules for an AI government. Think of it as a specific update of Asimov's three laws of robotics. This is your chance to shape the world in your image, a last gasp for human ego. What would your priorities be? Please share your results with us. Compare them with the other writers' responses. Is your focus on specific problems and industries, or is it more global in reach? Shah has gone off near future science fiction. He says futuristic predictions have failed. Unlike some other writers in this series, he's enjoying far-flung science fiction. Alfred Bester's The Stars, My Destination was a very influential example of far-future science fiction. I was so struck by it, I went to a 21st birthday party dressed as Gully Foyle. That novel showed me the extent to which we could imagine humanity changing in thousands of years' time. We'll evolve physically and psychologically as well as technologically. For your second exercise, instead of a broad think piece, I'd like you specifically to imagine w waking up in a human settlement in 10,000 years' time, suddenly shunted forward from here and now. This time, focus on the descriptive specifics of your experience, not the ideas. Write a few paragraphs or pages showing us how it feels, smells, tastes, sounds. Is gravity different? Who's around you? Where are you? You know nothing about the world you're in, and you can only start to piece it together with these immediate sensory stimuli. Have fun and please share. Compare your responses to any others that have been shared. How does your vision match and differ from other visions? What do you think this says about your creative imagination? Thanks for listening to this episode of Narrative Futures. Next week, Mavesh Murad joins me from Kuala Lumpur to discuss the art of the short story, discovering tabletop games, 
and whether TikTok is an effective platform for narrative engagement. Narrative Futures